Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, and welcome to a new episode of Talking Snooker with Phil Haig and Nick Metcalf. Once again, talking about the game we all love. Phil, a very good day to you. I, I hope Cornwall deliver the goods from what you were saying on uh, on social media. It sounded like, like a lovely uh, jaunt for you. Yeah, good afternoon. Uh, nice to be here as always. Yeah, it was great. A couple of days in Polpero, a couple of days in Padstow. Uh, so, yeah, just walking the dogs, going to a lot of pubs. Very pleasant indeed. Yeah, had a nice time. The weather wasn't the best, but can't have everything. It was good. Good man. And... Uh, we switched Q Sports, haven't we? Um, and we're watching a bit of pool at the moment. There's no snooker to watch. So we're, we're enjoying Judd Trump's progress, aren't we? We're just saying off air, the guy he played first, I mean, heavens above. I'm not saying that I could get in a good game. That would be quite rude and disrespectful. But um, you might be able to. <laughs> no, I, think, I think you've got a better chance than I have. But, um, yeah, I wouldn't, didn't know what to expect, really. Um, I spoke to Judd before he went and played. He didn't know much about the, the guy in the first round. but. Um, I think I've seen people in the pub play better than that. But, uh, you know, it was, they were saying on commentary is very nervous, so we'll stick with that. I don't know how generous they were being, but yeah, um, I've enjoyed actually the first couple of matches. But it'll be interesting when he gets uh, more of a proper test because I'd like to see it go close and see how how the tension builds. Because uh, those first two games are too one sided to get very tense at all, really. But no, it's interesting to watch, as you say, no snooker to enjoy. So good to have something on. Well, we're ticking down the weeks. Unfortunately, not days, still weeks away until the next big tournament. But that won't stop us talking about this game, of course. And we are happy to say that it's your views today. So we're going to address uh, your latest emails, your latest uh, tweets. And again, for one of these episodes, we are pleased to say that we are not alone. We are joined by somebody who is always a delight to read and engage with. This man has written extensively about the sport over the years, both for his own blog and publications like The Sportsman. And of course, like all of us, he is a passionate fan of the game we all love. It's Gary Moss. Great to see you, Gary. How are you? 
Afternoon, afternoon. Yeah, I'm very well. Thank you for having me on. Um, I was just pleased that you pushed this back to midweek because I had my uh, stag deal at the weekend and uh, I was a bit fragile yesterday and Monday. So uh, hopefully I'm in a little bit of better form today. But um, yeah, I'm very well. <laughs> thank you. And, and thanks for inviting me on. <laughs> Tell us more. Where was it? <laughs> um, we did a night in Leeds on Friday um, and then we went down to what's Leighton Orient in London on the Saturday. Um, and I had some quite um, interesting outfits <laughs> um, including an air hostess um, on the train down uh, and Peter Cech at the football match. So, uh, yeah, we had we had some fun and it was uh, yeah good to get some uh, some of the boys together. Yeah, sounds great. <laughs> well, I actually saw Orient last month. I thought it's... It, I, I fancy going to a game local to me. And it, I've got a bit of a surprise there. I've got to go on a bit, bit of a tangent here, as we tend to do. Both mm. Pleasant, Leighton, High Street these days and such a friendly club, isn't it, Orient? I mean, it's a... It's a smashing club, that it really. Of course, Barry Hearn used to be involved. Um, mm-hmm. We know so well from snooker, not anymore. But um, I mean, it's never a club that's been, you know, great achievers in, in in our lifetimes. But boy, it's lovely down there, isn't it? It's a smashing club. Yeah, it is a real like community club, and it probably helped that they they won four nil. They beat Oldham four nil, but they're very <laughs> like hospitable to our quite big rowdy group that were <laughs> having a bit of fun. I think if they were one nil down at home, they might have found our sort of you know bit of Mickey taking a bit too much. But yeah, they're <laughs> a really lovely club, a uh, nice part of London, and yeah, and a good standard of football still. So um, yeah, it's really good, really good day down there. <laughs> Well, I've not seen the table. They must be doing quite well in the early division there because they seem to win most times I check. But anyway, um, it's great to see you, Gary. And as we do with all our guest presenters, we like to ask a little bit about your background in the sport, kind of how you got into snooker. I mean, your love for it shines through with everything you do. And did that come from an early stage for you? It did, yeah. Um, I guess unlike a lot of people who answer this question, it didn't start with sort of playing on the small table. It was a bit different for me. It was more watching the game. So, um the first world championship that I remember sort of watching sort of quite avidly was 97 when I was age 10. Um, and it was through going round a, a school friend's house um, and their parents were watching it. And it was obviously the Ken Doherty year and uh, Higgy and Hendry and that were players at that time. And I just, I just really, really liked it. And I, until then, I'd only really played Paul. I used to just play Paul with my dad, you know, when we took me into a pub in those days you could you could and um when you went into the, you know a local country club and that kind of thing and I was really fascinated by how the, good the game looked and then you know watched a bit more I sort of used to just watch the world championships I watched a bit more in 98 99 and then it sort of culminated in me badgering my dad to take me to the world championship and we we went for the first time in 2001 um and my opening day there was um saw the whole of the class of 92 it was it was Williams lost in the morning session to Joe Swale um, then in the afternoon, Ronnie finished off uh, Dave Harold, and then and then John Higgins. I saw a few frames of Higgins against Chris Small. Oh, it was like a perfect start. And then and I was sort of just hooked. Then I sort of was then so hungry to you know see more snooker outside of the World Championship. And you know I've now been to lots of different tournaments and just just love watching it. And I I only really play it recreationally. I just get a lot of pleasure from watching it. But that's how it started for me, really. Wow. I mean, you, you wouldn't see the class of 90. You've probably never done that again. Have you seen them all? I mean, maybe playing with others, but... I don't think so, no. no. Um, but no, yeah, it was just a cracking day. And we had, you know, and we, we were amazed how easy it was to get sort of tickets back then. We sort of filled out, used to fill out the leaflet to get them. And you put a, I think you put a check in for the maximum value in case you able to get all the tickets. And sort of all these tickets came through the post like several <laughs> weeks later. And we were like, first row, second row you know, of all these second round games, but maybe expected to get one session um, and ended up there for a full day. And uh, until until the pandemic, until 
2020 have sort of been to the crucible every every year since since 2001 so just you know just such a special place for me growing up watching it really yeah superb effort and the same as you I think uh, a lot of people who are part of the game obviously the players but everyone else as well usually has a story about getting good at playing at a very young age and then they're at a good standard and I always feel like the less I talk about the standard of my play, the better. But I was always about the watching. Um, but yeah, similar to you there, Gary. Yeah, just sort of play for, play for fun, really. I've, mm. I've not really got any aspirations to sort of play to any high standard. I just get mm. much more pleasure just from watching the experts. So just sit back and enjoy that, really. Yeah, exactly. Well, we set a date, haven't we, Phil Haig? So we can see in a couple of weeks' time how bad we really are. And <laughs> yeah. um, we're, we're trying to do negotiations. We've said it before. I don't think the TV companies want it. They don't, they don't want to show it. Let, let's say that now. Um, we're going to be on our own, but it's, it's going to be great fun. I can't go any further now without saying that lovely picture in the background there, Gary. Now, it's an audio service. We have to describe it. It's a picture of that place we all love so much, the Crucible. What a lovely picture it is. It is, yeah. And it is, I've not put, I've not put that on my wall just before we started. <laughs> this that, that, that sits there. It's, got, um, it's there every day. And this is just where I sit in my office at home. But um, yeah, it's just like an abstract sort of picture of the Crucible. I'm sort of, I do like my sporting sort of memorabilia and art, but not really into like just straight photographs. And mm. my fiance bought that for me um, for my birthday a couple of years back. And it's sort of a yeah cross between a picture of the Crucible, but it's a little bit abstract a few different colours in it and uh, yeah I think it looks quite nice yeah superb love that mm. it's delightful and, you, and you've got a lovely picture of, of, of a flower market in Tokyo there <laughs> I feel we have got a, I've got a lovely picture here in this this hackney uh, room in the, my house that's uh, but I'm not sure it's put mine but quite abstracty but I feel like you two have stolen the show a little bit there you particularly go we're jealous of that picture aren't we Phil yeah Gary's won this competition yeah the competition I wasn't expecting but he's won the <laughs> The art prize this week. I won't be telling you my address then, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, this isn't your views, and we'll, we'll come to so many of those shortly. But, you know, we wouldn't be doing our duty, really, in, on a snooker podcast if we didn't first turn to what has become quite a surprising story over the last couple of weeks, really. And that's the nature of the World Championship, the length of the tournament, where the tournament is being held and has been held since 1977, of course, that famous, much-loved Crucible Theatre. Well, both Neil Robertson and Judd Trump have made quite dramatic comments about the championship, really. Robertson first telling the Talking Bulls podcast that he thinks matches should be shorter. It's just too long in this day and age, best of 33, best of 35, and perhaps should be played somewhere else apart from the Crucible before that one-table semi-final stage. And then Judd Trump talking to you, Phil, has gone even further and said the tournament should move away from the crucible. Now, I feel it's only polite if you talk about this, really. It's your story. I mean, that must have been dynamite when you heard that. And uh, I guess you were quite surprised, weren't you? Yeah, so I was talking to him about his, his pool adventure over to America and then just thought, just asked if he'd seen Neil's comments and if he had an opinion on it. And it, yeah, quite a strong opinion, really. Um, and it, yeah, it was very different. They've obviously, it's all come out of the same conversation. So they've been thrown together, but... Neil's points were very different to Judge, really. He, as you said, he his problem is the tightness of for playing there. So he says he literally can't play some shots um, because the crucible is so tight and he's quite a tall bloke. Um, so he just wanted somewhere that would give him give enough space to play and then return to play in the one table. Whereas Judd was 
talking more in terms of expansion of the game, get more fans in, growth of the game. Um, so there were quite different points in that in that uh, sense. Um, on the format, they were sort of saying the same thing. Um, both the um, specifically the semi-finals and the final are just too long, and anyone outside of very hardcore snooker fans won't be watching all four sessions. Um, but I think they were both suggesting keeping it at three sessions, going down to best of 25 maybe, um, which is a funny one because I don't think anyone who thinks four sessions of snooker is too long to watch would be happy to watch all of three sessions of snooker. <laughs> so, um, and they were they certainly weren't suggesting going any shorter than that. So I'm not sure... I'm not sure three sessions fixes that problem to attract a whole wave of new fans uh, just by making them as long as sort of the quarterfinals. Um, but yeah, the cru- I think it's the crucible thing that everyone has sort of been riled up by most because it's such a beloved venue and no one, or very, very few people want to see it leaving. Um, what I would say, certainly for speaking to Judd and Neil's the same really, that uh, it wasn't sort of for his own benefit. He's, he's, thinking about growing the sport and attracting new viewers. He's got a big thing about attracting the young, younger generation, which is important. Um, and I don't know, he sees that as part of sort of the expansion of the sport. But Dave Hendon was brilliant on the Snooker Scene podcast. He put it better than I could, talking about um, how, like, financially it wouldn't make much sense because it's free to... They, they'd have to pay to rent the Crucible. And if you would say putting it in a 5,000 seat venue like Judd was talking about, would you be able to charge the same ticket prices? Probably not. Would it be full for most matches? Probably not. So, um, you know, it was just theorising from Judd. Uh, it probably won't happen. Um, it certainly won't happen anytime soon, I don't think. But, uh, you know, it's interesting that he's thinking about the game. And uh, as I say, he's well-intentioned, even though the vast majority of people won't agree, agree with him. And he knew that, to be fair. I think when he says these things, he was saying, this is hard to say, and I know people won't like it. But fair play for him to come out and give his opinions anyway. What was your reaction, Gary? I mean, <laughs> the, the picture behind and some of the things you, you, you said about the venue over the years suggests that we know the answer. But, but I know you'll put it very eloquently. What, what, yeah, what were your thoughts? Yeah, I, naturally, I'm probably in that sort of traditionalist box um yeah naturally I, I, I would never want it to leave it feels a bit like the FA Cup final at Wembley and you know Wimbledon SW17 like that sort of is synonymous with it really and I've been to a lot of the venues and none of them feel the same as the Crucible and that's not just inside that's outside and all that the history that you feel when you walk in the room but I guess by the same token you know as fans, we we probably do feel differently. We don't have to go in there and play. So what Neil says about the conditions, that doesn't affect us, we, you know, at all. So you have to respect that sort of opinion. But in, in my mind, it, it's just change, not so much with the format, maybe that could be tweaked, that's probably a different debate, but in terms of moving from the crucible, is it change for change, change sake? I mean, uh, all I tend to read is that it's, you know, the most popular tournament, you know, viewing figures seem to be going up and up, etc. So it, I, I, yeah, I don't know if it, it solves as many problems as it, as it, as it maybe is purporting to. Um, but yeah, I see, see that point of view from a player, I guess. Um, and it, and I agree with Phil, it definitely came from, 
you know, a good a good place or, you know, a well-intentioned place for the game. Um, I think Judd made some similar comments last year around the BBC coverage and there was some improvements to that. So I genuinely do think he has the, you know, the best welfare of the game in mind. So um, rather than shoot him down immediately, you, you sort of unpick, unpick what he's saying and see if there are any learnings. But um, uh, ultimately, it's still a no from me and many people, I guess. Well, I think the majority, I think the snooker.org, very good, uh, website very good service very good social media put a poll up and it was 90 something was said 92 i think that wanted it to stay at the crucible but not everyone thinks that and i think we will we will come on to that i mean one thing i will say to play devil's advocate a little bit and i said the same thing as you gary before oh it's it, you know and it's obvious thing to say it's so synonymous with a sport like wimbledon like lords like wembley but what i would say is that all those venues have changed i mean wembley is actually a new stadium it's literally a new place the old one was much loved. I went there many, many times in my life, but it clearly needed an upgrade. It wasn't the most pleasant place at the end. Lords, for example, is unrecognisable from when I first went 30-odd years ago. Different stands all around the ground. Wimbledon as well. Number one court's new, I think, isn't it? Number two court. They put roofs on. So they're all different. Now, I'm not saying that this proves anything. You know, the Crucible is a theatre for most of the year. You know, we only have it. And Snooker only has it for a couple of weeks. So... You know, it's not quite so easy to start saying, well, let's change this, change that. I do think it's a bit of a change that, a bit of a shame, sorry, that cosmetically there couldn't be some slight change, even if it's pushing the row or two back just so they have that bit more space, just so everyone's a bit more comfortable, because it would seem like a small thing to make everything a bit, quite a lot better. But anyway, my feeling about it is, apart from that, is there's not really a wow venue for me waiting in the wings. If I thought there was, I'd be like, hmm, I can probably get behind this a bit. But I remember growing up, must have been 20, 25 years ago now, there was talk of the Albert Hall hosting it. And that was at a time when the Crucible still meant a lot, but it didn't have quite the emotional cachet because it had only been like 20 years now. It's 40-odd now, so it's a, it's a bit different. The Albert Hall is clearly a special building. It never happened. But something like maybe as special as that, it would need to be in a way, I would think, because otherwise you you kind of got in your head, what's the point type thing? And I think as you guys have already suggested there, you know, if the tournament was was in trouble and it was down on its uppers, I could think, mm, okay, maybe something needs to be looked at here. But I think nearly 5 million people watched the last final peak audience. And that's tremendous. I mean, you, you made the point, Phil, very well, I thought last time, that it's not always easy to contextualise TV viewing figures. But obviously we had a very special tennis event in this uh, country for us on Saturday. Now, I think 9.2 million ended up watching that US Open final. And uh, Emma Raducanu, that famous win for her. Now, half of that watched the World Snooker final. I mean, that's tremendous. If you think that was almost a national event, what happened on Saturday. And then for half that to watch a, the World Final that happens every year, it's a popular event. Now, of course, people don't watch the whole thing. Some people, you know, we will, because we're passionate snooker people. But isn't that the same for any event? I mean, that's, you know, I think Judd and Neil are suggesting that change the format a bit. Everyone will watch every ball. They'll be hooked by it. I don't know. That's quite, quite true. The other point I'd like to make, and I'll try and keep it as brief as possible, because I know we could both talk forever about this. <laughs> I do think it's a bit impractical for Judd to talk about 5,000 people, unless we want Snooker to go down a very different road. Because I've been to the Ali Pali Darts. I know it's an event you know better than me, Phil. I mean, dartboard is very small, even compared to a snooker table. We know that. But when you're there, you know, you're effectively watching it on telly. And I think if you did that on snooker, I, I saw someone else made this point on social media, it becomes a different kind of atmosphere. 
And I think there's, a, there's, an, there's an unspoken word, almost a, a bond, a contract between snooker, if you like, and the snooker fan, that you'll always see the balls on the table with your own eyes. You see, I've never gone to snooker and not seen the balls on the table yeah. with my own eyes. And I sat at the very back of Ali Pali, and it's okay, but you wouldn't want to be much further away and still have a view. So I think two, two and a half, historically and practically, is about the maximum, unless you want to go down a different road and take it into a different kind of realm. Do you know what I mean there, Phil? 100%, yeah. Um, yeah, I've been to the Premier League final at the O2 watching the darts. And, uh, you know, you can barely see the, the players, never mind the board. <laughs> you certainly couldn't see where the darts are landing. And that's the same with everywhere, really. It's just a small thing. But, um, yeah, you, you are watching a screen. And especially at Ali Pali, that sort of you get away with it because a lot of the people there aren't even there to watch the darts. They're just there to enjoy themselves have a bit of a party, which is fine, but it's a completely different thing from the snooker. So, yeah, there's, I don't know what the, the maximum is um, in terms of crowds. I know we talk about two, 2,200, I think, is the Masters, 2,500 at the German. Um, I don't know how much more you could go past that. But, yeah, Judd was talking about putting it in, like, a stadium. Um, which made it sound like, you know, when they put like the boxing at a football stadium, which that is just not going to happen like that, is it? Um, so, yeah, I think on that point, there's only so far you can go unless you want to completely change the viewing experience, which I agree with you, Nick, that you wouldn't want to do that. Um, your first point, I completely agree with. I, I'm no architect or <laughs> structural engineer or anything, but you would hope that they could just slightly rejig the crucible, not lose any seats. Uh, ideally squeeze a few more in and solve Neil's problems about just it being a hair too tight because that sounds like it would only be a few inches um you know it's right at the corner he said it's it's just too tight when against the table where the players sit like hopefully they would be able to sort that out without too much hassle and then all those problems would uh be fixed but yeah like you say it's it's not snooker's venue we we just turn up once a year and I imagine Sheffield theatres are not flush with lots of cash to be sorting this kind of stuff out. Um, so I don't know if there's uh, something can be done with that, but hopefully, because, yeah, like, as I said, Neil and Judd's points were quite different, really. Neil was literally from a practical point of view. So hopefully that could be done. Um, and, yeah, as you said about the alternative, it's the same with a lot of things. It's like when football teams talk about, football fans talk about wanting to get rid of a manager. It's, it's a useless discussion unless you've got a better one ready to go. And uh, I've not heard one better suggestion um, than the Crucible. So until there's a a much better uh, option on the line, then, uh, yeah, not interested really. It's a big, it's it's the same with everything. There's a big, there's always a tussle between growth and traditionalism to an extent, but the growth has got a, the benefits of the growth have got a far outweigh um, what is being held back in inverted commons by the traditionalism and, the benefits in this circumstance certainly don't outweigh the, the benefits of the traditional aspect. There was um, there was talk at last year's Masters about this would be a perfect venue, you know, or a great venue for the World Championship. But you got to remember is that's what is making the Masters great. Yeah. That's not the answer for then other tournaments. You know, the Crucible makes the World Championship great. The Ali Pali is currently making the Masters great. I think each tournament's got to have its own its own story, its own personality and its own character. Um, and, you know, as we get more tournaments and they get more history and they move to good venues and that kind of thing, hopefully there could just be more 
more tournaments that are, are closer to the world championship or have as much, you know, prestige as the world championship. That should probably be the goal rather than, you know, trying to make this one tournament everything, I think. Yeah. The vast majority agree, but I think it's fair to reflect that I've certainly had some comments and uh, I think you chaps may, may well have done as well. There are some people that say differently, and I hope they won't mind me saying, because they put the comments out there on social media. A Richard Mann, a fine journalist I know with The Sporting Life, said he, he's not one that likes change, but he thought Judd made a decent case. And while we could keep the crucible in the game, maybe it's time to look at a different venue. Shamoon Hafiz, who I know we all know from the BBC top journalist, he says that, you know, maybe it's time to, for an upgrade of facilities generally for that tournament. Because, again, to play devil's advocate, the arena is magnificent. I mean, even now, I've been going for decades. When you first go in there for, for a new year, if you like, you're like, wow, this is special. And you never lose that. But the building itself is relatively unprepossessing, um, mm. to put it nicely. And maybe, you know, the tournament is so big now, maybe it's not always becoming of it. I'm just playing devil's advocate. I don't want it to move either. But I can see why... You know, maybe people are saying this. I mean, it's contracted anyway until 2027. The feeling might be that there's another contract to come after that. But I think Dave Hendon said it, as you said, brilliantly, Phil. One day it probably will go because there'll be enough money in it to go. And again, we have had people from overseas certainly writing to me saying, wait a sec, it's OK for you guys. Maybe it should move around a bit. And, and to be fair to them, a lot of them aren't saying bring it to China or bring it to Germany every year. They're talking about like a, a rotation thing, mm -hmm. a bit like the Open Golf Championship, where it goes from place to place. And it's the, at the Crucible every three or four years. I mean, is that something that, you know, we could maybe get behind? I don't know, Phil. Well, Judd actually did mention that, sort of try, try it out every, switch it around every every other year, which, um, yeah, I wouldn't be against that. I know that would be a good test, you know, if we went and tried it one year somewhere else and it was awful, then that would just end the debate and it'd be at the crucible forever after that. I think I think you're right about sort of the, um, the building itself. I think the best thing that would happen to it, really, and Barry Hearn mentioned this before, obviously now not the chairman, but he's still very much involved. He mentioned buying the crucible before. I think that would, that would probably be the best thing for it if it was just sort of bought by the snooker chiefs who then spent a lot of money on it and they could make it a bit bigger and leave it as the crucible, like you were speaking about before, how... Lords has changed immeasurably, Wimbledon. So it would still be the Crucible, but could fix some of the problems that Neil and Judd have been talking about, get a few more seats in, do it up a bit, make it a little bit bigger, and but retain what is great about the Crucible, hopefully with the atmosphere and, the and well, the tightness. <laughs> you want the tightness for the atmosphere, but not the restrictive nature of the playing. So that, I think that would be the ideal situation, whether that could happen or not, I don't know. But Harry Hearn has certainly mentioned buying the Crucible before, so... Yeah, that would, that would be the dream scenario, I think. Keep it at the Crucible, keep it as the Crucible, but um, just spruce it up a bit and make it a little bit bigger. Yeah, I mean, but then again, you sort of think it is imperfect, the Crucible, in some ways. The tournament is imperfect in some ways, but it's those imperfections that make it close to perfection for us. If I can mm. turn it into a bit of poetry like that, Gary, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah I think every... Yeah, it has its flaws, I guess. Um, yeah, the idea about, you know, World Snooker owning the Crucible, it would be more for me the, the sort of the the back areas, the areas we, we we maybe don't see when we're in the auditorium, making those a bit more bespoke and a bit more tailored 
to what the snooker players need in terms of you know practice facilities or whatever it might be and you know changing room facilities because there's been debates around you know Ronnie's been in a changing room too long when he's got his media day and all that kind of stuff so there's obviously some bits and pieces you know behind the scenes that could could deal with it but yeah I would I wouldn't know how close or even possible that would be but it it sounds like um some some sort of utopia for uh, for <laughs> snooker fans I guess. <laughs> well, indeed. And uh, well, I think we may have spent long enough on that for now, if next we've got any more to say. But we're certainly, you know, singing for the same hymn sheet here, all three of us generally. Uh, but that's not to say we don't welcome debate and other views. That's important as well. And as I say, not absolutely everybody does think the Crucible is the long term home of the tournament. It's, it is important to say that. Um, folks, let's move on to correspondence then for this Your Views episode. And uh, we'll first go to James Heat on email, who writes to us and says, I was wondering how much of an advantage height is when playing snooker. Obviously, the taller you are, the less you need the rest. Has there been any statistical analysis to see if there's a correlation between height and performance? Well, I don't know there's been any analysis that I know of. I mean, it must be an advantage um, in terms of being able to reach certain shots. I remember Alan McManus uh, speaking to me at the Crucible after Judd Trump won his world title. And he made a, a real point of saying how Judd was tall, he was rangy, and that was a really important element of being a top snooker player. But then, you know, we talked about Neil's height. Maybe that doesn't help him when it, when it comes to the Crucible. I mean, what, what's your feeling on this, Phil? Um it's a great way to start the the viewer the listener correspondence quite a niche point um yeah uh, i don't i had a brief look i couldn't find any uh anyone's done a, a very niche thesis on this or anything like that um yeah judd and neil quite tall players aren't they um actually do some googling uh Stephen Hendry is just a bit taller than ronnie o'sullivan and steve davis is just a bit taller than Stephen Hendry, but they're all around the same ballpark Around six foot. Steve Steve Day is a bit taller than that. Um, but then John Higgins is a fair bit shorter. Jimmy White's a bit shorter. Um, so I don't think there doesn't seem to be a bang average height for all the best snooker players out there. Uh, but of course, yeah, the shorter players will have to use the rest more. Um, but they'll probably just become um, more proficient with that. Jimmy White's always talked about as an excellent rest player, probably because he had to use it more. But then the other guys in that conversation, sort of Kyron Wilson, Sean Murphy, they're tall lads as well. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think there's a, a... Unless you were, like, incredibly short or incredibly tall that would, that would hamper you, I think uh, I think you can... restrictions that, they, that your height uh, bestows on you. Do you think if we were a couple of inches more, we'd be world champion? Uh, potentially, that's, that's all it takes, Gary. Yeah, Probably maybe, not. Yeah, maybe that's my excuse. Um, yeah, <laughs> I agree with Phil. Really, maybe at the extremities of it, but you, you know, Judd's got a great range of shots. He's got a you know, decent height, and then as you say, players who maybe need to use the rest become a little bit stronger with that. But I, uh, yeah, when when this question was posed, I sort of sort of Graham Dot and Ken Doherty came to mind, who have both obviously won a world title and both got to multiple finals and. You know, just, yeah, they've got you know, great cue actions. I think it's more more technique than, mm. than than height and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, when you said that was one of the questions, I, I did think that was a bit of a, a googly of all the questions you could have been asked. I thought <laughs> I wasn't a, not so I really thought about too much, um, which probably suggests it's not really a factor. I think we would have picked up on it if there was some, you know, some odd correlation of it. I think. Yeah, 
Well, our, our listeners have bowled us a few googlies here today, no doubt about it. We've got a few more coming up here. Um, this is Daniela Daniel on email. Hi, Nick and Phil, just sharing some of my snooker views these days. Am I the only one annoyed when top players talk about pressure on the main tour? Don't you think it's a little bit silly? In my eyes, there's no quotes unquote pressure for the top players who have already amassed a good sum of money over the course of their careers. What does it mean to play under extreme pressure? It is just a snooker match at the end of the day. Open heart surgery is pressure. A pilot making an emergency landing is pressure. I can sympathise with lower ranked players trying to make a living out of playing snooker, but that's not the case of the top boys. Just my views as a non-British snooker fan. Cheers, Daniela. Well, cheers to you, Daniela. Great to hear from you. Uh, Gary, pressure uh, on the top players? I mean, it's all relative, isn't it? I think we'll, we'll, we'll say that. Yeah, I think, first point, we all live in our own sort of prisons <laughs> of pressure and we all have pressures in our life that are very different from a, from a surgeon to a snooker player. No one would argue <laughs> with that. But I think in terms of the sort of the extremities of the of the rankings, obviously, yeah, you've got the, you know, some of the guys towards the bottom rankings, they, you know, they're, they're playing to try and pay their mortgage and and feed the children and that kind of thing. But I think the guys at the top, of course it's pressure because they're, you know, they're the sort of the winners and the elite and the champions of their sport. And they they put that pressure on them. They're they're building their legacy. They're, you know, creating that sort of CV that they're going to retire from the sport with. And, um, you know, to them, the be all and end all is, is winning and being the best at their sports. There's sort of, I guess, a pressure that comes with that. I just think, um, you know, we've all we've all felt pressure in our jobs um, at times, and I think we could all step back and go, actually, it doesn't matter too much. But um, when you're out there with a uh, thousand people watching you in the crucible, when you're playing for a, a world championship worth five hundred thousand pounds, it you know it's going to be a tough a, a tough cookie to not feel any any ounce of pressure. But I guess it's the ones that can handle that that ultimately ultimately do what's. Yeah, of course. I mean, I think Dan Hill is sort of saying financial pressure fair enough that is one type of pressure and uh that's why i find fascinating watching some of the lower ranked players um at the qualifiers the world championship is a good example of that the pressure there because they're literally playing for their livelihoods um which of course is um possibly the most important type of pressure that would be on you in a sporting sense but um yeah you can't just dismiss the pressure of just playing high level sport you know in any sport it's not just snooker you know the guys who were taking penalties for England in the Euro t- final, you know, financially, they're not in any bother whether they would scored those penalties or not. But you can't say there's no pressure on those guys. Um, and yeah, as you say, Gary, they put it on themselves. It's part of the game. Um, you know, when I play darts in the pub, I, I feel under pressure to win. <laughs> there's no importance on that at all. And you can tell the difference in the pressure you feel when you play with just a couple of mates around or if there's you're playing a team you don't know or there's a few people watching, you feel completely more under pressure there. So, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a strange one from Daniela to, to completely <laughs> dismiss types of pressure other than financial because, um, yeah, if you watch any sport ever, you can see the pressure that they're under. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just a part of sport. It's part of life. Um, but, yeah, it's certainly a part of snooker and that's what, makes snooker so compelling a lot of the time, how you can physically see the pressure taking its toll on the players. Yeah, I mean, totally agree with both both of you there, chaps. I mean, in a funny kind of way, you'd say logically Daniela's right, and it's kind of an English language thing, perhaps. We don't have enough words sometimes, because I think I use the word devastated 
a few episodes ago about Gary Wilson losing the British Open final and then qualified it a bit by saying that's obviously within snooker because there are many more important things. But I think I think that famous spat between Ronnie O'Sullivan and Ali Carter, pretty sure Ronnie uh, mentioned in the in the press conference afterwards, you know, come on, there's you know, what's going on in Syria and Iraq? And I think it was the aforementioned Shamoon Hafiz who actually said, but well, we work in the sports industry, Ronnie. And he said, well, I know we do, but there are more important. And there are more important things going on. And of course, the pressure, uh, quotes, unquote, isn't as great as it is or as important as it is for what those other people are doing. But in this world of snooker and the high stakes involved, there is a kind of pressure in there. We have to be careful with our language. It's why... Um, I think the great Richie Benno once wrote a kind of list or, or spoke a list of, of um, kind of do's and don'ts for commentators. And I think it was the word disaster. It might have been tragic, but I think it was disaster. He said, be very careful when using that word because, you know, it's not really a disaster if England lose by five wickets in a test match. So, you know, so we do have to be careful. I know, you know, certainly, you know, with us and being you, Phil, in terms of regularly writing for Metro, we have to be careful in that regard because... You know, and of course, the work you do the same as, as well, Gary. You know, you can't constantly talk about what a disaster and how tragic it is for Ronnie or John Higgins to lose a match because because it isn't. So it, it's a good lesson, perhaps, because I've known people in my own life, actually, that maybe overheard bits on the telly in the past and they'll say, oh, someone needs courage to knock that red in or, oh, they're under pressure. But <laughs> people do sometimes think that, it's fair to say, but it's uh, maybe, maybe a being careful with language thing, Phil. Yeah, of course. I, I, I read an interesting tweet not long ago, and people saying we should stop saying suicidal defending in in football because it's just this outrageous thing to say, really. But it's just part of the lexicon, really. You just get used to it. And obviously, no one thinks that's what it means. But yeah, you just say things without thinking sometimes. But and you haven't got to be careful. But yeah, you just you, you become immersed with it in in the world, don't you? And obviously, as soon as you put it, relatively speaking, compare it to more important things, then everyone will say. Well, yeah, it's not the same as going to war, is it? But, you know, we allow ourselves to sort of suspend belief for a while and get uh, lose ourselves in the moment a bit with sport. And that's part of the appeal of it, isn't it? And, um, yeah, you can go over the top and as soon as you do compare it to a soldier or a nurse or something, then it sounds ridiculous. But it's all part of the fun of it, really, isn't it? And the irony is, uh, Gary, we probably love sport and write about sport and talk about sport as partly an escape from those more serious matters, don't we? Exactly, yeah. You just sort of leave all your, all your worries of your life behind you when you go in and watch a you know, match of football or a game of snooker and just, you know, get into character for that, you know, that occasion. And at that point, that's all that does matter. Um, but just um, don't live your life by that all the time, I guess. You know, um, remember to come out the other side at the end of the match. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I feel this one should go to you first as well, Gary, because we certainly had our say enough on, on the format of matches. Alex Gerrard here, who we know best as Cluster of Reds, very good service on, on Twitter and elsewhere. Hello, Nick and Phil. Brilliant work on the podcast. Do keep it going. I wish to ask if you are worried about shortening lengths of snooker matches. It's been gradual over the past decade and best of sevens are now pretty commonplace but it's slightly concerning to see tournaments that have best of threes as ranking events. And uh, also, of course, the British Open best of five. It feels that events with long matches, UK Championship, which has been shortened over the years, Worlds, Players' Championship, Tour Championship, are more scarce. And it's not fair on players like McGill and Dot, 
who are better players under that format. What do you think should we be concerned? What's your feeling? What's your feeling about the, the British Open, Gary, and that best of five format? Um, I, I think it was. I think it's very good for the spectators, whether you're, you know, in the in the um, arena or at home, that you get to sort of watch lots of fast and furious matches, see lots of different players who you might want to see, and obviously by the nature of them being best of five, a lot of them are going to go to deciders and be close. There's a lot, there's a lot of jeopardy from, from, from frame one, I guess, which makes it quite interesting. But in terms of the wider question, in terms of, you know, am I, am I concerned or worried? I, you know, I won't quite go that far. I think it's, you know, I prefer the longer matches. I think uh, it, even the Masters and the UK, the fact that it's best of 11, you've got a, a mid-session interval, I think creates a dynamic, which I quite enjoy when I watch it. But I think, I think the key to a successful tour is that variety of, of all of them, really. And actually, if we talk about that, that pressure, previous question that we had that, you know, the lower ranked players are under, it's not a complete lottery. We know that. We've spoke about that because the best players tend to win the shorter events. But it clearly gives them an opportunity, those lower ranked players, to go a little bit deeper, which is clearly good for that pressure that they're feeling of needing to earn some prize money. So... Yeah, not concerned, but I guess it's just getting that balance right. But I, but I do think events such as the ITV series that comes just in the run up to the world to sort of maybe redress that balance that mm. when we were going the lot of the best of sevens at one point, I think we've got a nice sort of run into the world championship of a few longer format matches on the way in, which I think really does help balance things up a little bit. Yeah, they've been brilliant, haven't they? The tour championships has become one of the best events on the calendar and I think I haven't got the figures to hand but th- th- they do really well I think for ITV and obviously the Worlds is the biggest um, viewing figures the Masters in the UK so they're never going to go all the way to short formats because I think the most popular events are still the longest format so um, that'll keep it keep it going for them and and also I think we don't want to judge too harshly on sort of the Covid era because um, the calendar has been chopped and changed and thrown together a bit over the last 18 months or so like the, the best of three WST series was mentioned in the question. And, uh, you know, that that was just chucked in for something to do really more than anything. Um, I don't think it means that we're going to go down the best of three routes. And similarly, the British Open, that was sort of thrown together at the last minute. Um, best of five, it, it may well come back like that because I think it went went down. Um, it went down a lot better than a lot of people were expecting it to. So we could see that back. But I don't think it's a, a massive trend that we're going to, end up seeing a lot more best of threes, best of fives. Um, so, yeah, uh, when things get back to normal, I think we can see where it's going there. So, I, you know, I, like you, Gary, I'm not concerned about it. And, uh, yeah, I don't know, it's a funny point about it being fair to sort of players who prefer longer format. I, I sort of don't really see it like that. Um, I don't know if anyone read the, the interview I, I did with Anthony McGill at, at the British Open. And... Uh, who's painfully honest really is very good um because he's sort of painted as this he's only does well in these longer format games but he admitted it himself it's because he only really tries and prepares properly for the crucible um he would do better in short format games if he took it more seriously and he said that himself that's not me being disrespectful um so yeah that that, that was an interesting view on the, the crucible player in inverted commas thing i mean some crucible players are just those because they only try really hard at the Crucible. So, yeah, that's an interesting view on that side of things. Mm. No, I can't really add any more to that. I thought that was a bit sort of half crazy for McGill, Phil. I'm glad you brought it up. Well, I don't think we did on this before. 
you know, um, we know how brilliant he is at the Crucible, and he, he looks like he can go deep there every year, but there's a lot more to, to snooker life than that tournament, as massive as it is, and it's clearly the most important. I mean, he has proved, of course, I think he won the shootout, didn't he? So he can, he can win yeah. those sort of maverick short ones. He can do it. But, yeah, I thought that was, um, you know, a bit... We, we always want people to be honest in this sport, but that was a bit almost too open for me. It was it was quite frustrating to listen to him because he's such a brilliant player. And, he, yeah, he, he almost said that he just doesn't really try the rest of the year. And I was thinking, come on, why? Like, um, so, yeah, it was a frustrating one, but... Um, he also recognised that he needed to sort it out and it was the wrong attitude to have. So hopefully he will because, yeah, uh, he's a great player um, as he shows at Sheffield quite often. He really does. We got Steve Dunn on email that kind of uh, redresses it a bit by by saying, I love the podcast. I've listened every week since it started. Great to have you listening, Steve. Says he feels like there's so much backlash about different formats and match lengths in recent years. And... For Steve, he says, I think the latest conversation around the British Open has kind of been a bit of a tipping point for me. I don't really understand the issue. There are plenty of events with longer matches and plenty of events with standard seeded formats. I think it would be weird to expect everything to be the same, particularly as the proof is in the pudding. Almost all events in the last few years have been won by the top group of players anyway. So it's not really the lottery, quotes unquotes, that everyone claims it to be. Anyway, as a huge snooker fan, I just worry that as a community, we get so critical of anything that isn't the same format as the World Championship. And I think we could do with embracing a developing and diverse tour. Would love to know where you guys stand on this. Thanks again for all you do. It's a real lifeline for those of us who can't get enough snooker chat. Well, uh, not, I'm about to say amen. That's not praising us. I think amen. <laughs> we can't, we, we, we all like as, much, like as much snooker chat as we can, which is why we like and embrace all the... Um, the, foot, the, the podcasts or the blogs and uh, all the writing out there. Lots of wisdom there, Steve. Uh, I mean, I, I sort of tend to agree with some of that. I do think, I can't remember who said it now, but, uh, you know, if it wasn't the best of five at the British Open, uh, one, one of the more learned pundits was saying it would have been something else. We do like a moan. Now, I follow a, a, quite a few sports, and most sports fans like a moan, frankly, whatever their chosen sport is, but... Do, do we go down that route too much in snooker? I wonder sometimes. Maybe. And, you know, when it comes to being stick in the mud, so I wonder if snooker fans are, are, are really take their biscuit in, in that regard and maybe could embrace change a bit more. I mean, I sat on the French of the British Open in the sense that uh, I, I messaged you, Phil, on that Friday and said, uh, best of five has gone on a bit too long for me now. First two rounds, OK. Now it's getting deeper. I, will, I want it a bit longer. And I started to, to tire of the, not the, no, but not the chance. Yes, the chance. The chance element became a bit too much chance for me as it went deeper. So, I mean, I, I can see both sides. But, yeah, we do like a moan, don't we, Gary? That's, that, that's, that's, part, that's part of the makeup of all our snooker fans, isn't it? Yeah, I think, is that the, sort of the social media age we live in where there's sort of that constant overload of sort of content? And we, you know, we always have to be saying something about it. Mm. And it becomes sort of that quite... You know, critical. You know, critical stuff tends to stand out and creates the debate. But yeah, I, yeah, as I said in the previous question, really, I think it's about different tests. I'd be, I'd be more concerned about making sure that, um, I guess, some of these events are played in um, a good enough uh, venue, the standards of venue for the player, than how many frames they are. I think that's probably more important um, mm -hmm. to to the players. And 
and listen, this is a full-time profession for the um, for the players. So the, the important thing, and you touched on it earlier, Phil, when you said about the COVID tournaments that we had, the important thing was that the, the players were playing, however many frames that was, it was an opportunity for them to earn money. But but yeah, in terms of the overcritical side of it, I just think that's a that's the world we live in, that sort of social media craze where there's just opinions and data like constantly coming across <laughs> our face and into our brains all the time. And uh, yeah, it's, it's good to shut it out sometimes and just just you know, you just enjoy it. Yeah, and I think this sort of it's emboldened a bit by players being on there as well, isn't it? You know, when the British Open was announced, there were quite a few players sort of openly saying, "Oh, what is this best of five nonsense?" So then everyone will feel a lot more comfortable to sort of slag it off as well. But I think there were very few negatives afterwards. So I, I agree with Steve. I think maybe um, I mean this isn't just snooker, but if everyone keep an open mind to stuff that we haven't seen yet. You know, we haven't played the British Open as a best of five. Um, so and everyone was sort of writing it off saying that some people wouldn't weren't even watching it because of uh, because of the format but you know give it a chance if it had been awful fair enough scrap it or change it do something different but um we gave it a chance and it was actually pretty good so uh yeah keep an open mind keep a british open mind <laughs> i was just cynical thinking then as you were talking that um well, if we weren't moaning about snooker, we'd be moaning about something else, wouldn't we? So um, that's a bit cynical. We've got Matt <laughs> Cowan on email here. And, um, well, he certainly enjoyed the Bushish Open. He says, I, I went to the final. It was brilliant. The short format throughout was excellent for instant tension. Open draw was great, added interest. We had loads of stories. Rianne v. Mark, uh, Hendry winning, local Geordie Derby, then Hendry embarrassment, quality final and great champion. Coverage from ITV was superb. 128 players in TV tournament loved it. Agree with Peter Devlin about attracting new fans. Venue grace inside, but location poor. Says it was a scruffy backstreet industrial estate. Needs to be in a city centre with bars and eateries, as when it started in Darbley assembly rooms. Well, we can't speak about that, Phil, but you were there. Was scruffy backstreet industrial estate a bit harsh? <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I don't want to be too critical of uh, Leicester City Centre. I mean, it is in the city centre. I was sort of staying in the uh, bang in the middle. And it was only a walk away, but it was a sort of slightly strange sort of walk over a very busy road and round a corner. And then it sort of appears. Um, so yeah, I mean, it could it could have been a, a, a nicer spot, but I don't know how many sort of big arenas are bang in the middle of the city centres next to all the nice bars and cafes. It doesn't really happen that often. Uh, Derby Assembly Rooms. I've been to Derby Assembly Rooms to go to see Bloodstock, which is a heavy metal festival, but I've never seen snooker there. Um, but yeah, uh, everything else. Uh, what I was going to say, I was that reminded me you saying about 128 players about the short formats as well. Um, when people want really long format tournaments, you know, that's always what the, the organisers say. We've got to get all 128 players in, and you can't just have best of best of 11s onwards. Um, there's just not space. So you do need to uh, accommodate the whole tour, and that's why you get shorter formats a lot of the time. Um, but, yeah, I agree with most of those points on there. Um, it, all, it was all pretty good. Um, and, yeah, I suppose, yeah, I'm not saying the Morningside Arena is the best arena in the world, um, but it was fine. I think there weren't too many complaints from spectators or or players even about the, the layout or um, how it was presented. Uh, Judd complained a bit about the conditions, but I didn't really hear anyone else complaining too much. Um, so yeah, tick, tick most boxes of the British Open, really. I'm always a bit wary talking about general location or, or where tournaments are and when they are, because I kind of realise that I have nothing to do with the organisation of that, and it's a much more complex 
situation and arrangement than, than really I can probably, you know, visualise, uh, basically. But I, I think we can all recognise venues that are in special places. Now, York always comes to mind, my old university town. You know, the Barbican's right in the centre there, next to the city walls. It's lovely, it's special. Uh, but I guess they can't all be like that, uh, Gary, but we, I guess we all have our, our favourites, don't we, throughout? I mean, I go to Leicester quite a lot now for football. I think it's a fine town. I enjoy going there. But, you know, I think the important thing is spreading it around as much as we can, can't we? And some parts of the country always say, oh, you never come here. And there's always someone disappointed. But, well, the Midlands are doing all right now, aren't they, though? They, they, they seem to be served pretty well. Yeah, they've got Milton Keynes and, um, and Leicester. And obviously you've got, you know, a lot of qualifiers up in Barnsley. And I think you're right. Yeah, it's just trying to tour it around a little bit. I guess the only area can't really recall us going is down into sort of the, the southwest type area but yeah it's all it seems to have moved around okay and yeah, our, yeah British Hope it was a good it was a good tournament wasn't it and um it was it was you know Leicester's become a bit of a new haunt on the tour really which um you know is, is quite accessible um so yeah I think it's um all okay really well I, I, I think I think that's a point about the crucible as well what a great spot it is in Sheffield yeah. Um, right in the right in the centre, by all those great pubs, bars, restaurants, right near the train station. Um, yeah, it's it's just in a beautiful spot as well. So that's just another plus uh, f- for that great venue. That's a really important thing to say, actually. Um, contrasting it with something like Hillsborough Football Ground, which is of course a wonderful old ground in our game, but it's it's quite a long way out of town, isn't it? Yeah, crucibles out there wouldn't have the same impact. But the fact that you're doing that walk from the station up that hill, that that wonderful walk, though, and and you know, it's a cliche to say it, but there are a few butterflies and excitement. Can't wait to see the old place. And it's a bit like that, isn't it? And of course, actually, we've got a question about the crucible coming up and, and practically about Sheffield. So we'll turn to that quite soon. But you're right. It, that's part of it. And actually, it reminds me, going off tangent a bit um, uh, to different sports, when Wembley was re- redeveloped and Cardiff was being used for cup finals and big football matches, a lot of fans that hadn't been there. I mean, it's quite a new ground, actually, then were like, wow, it's right in the centre. And it really is. When you go to Cardiff, you see it as you approach the station. Fans can drink there. You can sort of drink there till half two and then go in the stadium for three o'clock start. But not everywhere can be like that, can there, Phil? <laughs> Life's not quite as perfect always as that. Yeah, of course. I always think St James's Park is a brilliant one for that. You just walk up from the town centre. Uh, it's brilliant. Um, but then, yeah, sort of more modern grounds are always a bit stuck on the outside. Like where I am in Reading, the Majeski sort of, out in a retail park it's not a great spot at all really but nice enough stadium but uh yeah you can't always have everything but um yeah york's a good example like you said um well the masters as well i mean as great as ali pally is it's a pain in the neck to get to um for most people even when you get there you've got that bloody hill to walk up it's a nightmare um but yeah so i think it's more sort of treasure the ones that are well placed so you can't have it ever every time really yeah making sense there Another sort of tournament question, Brian Campbell on Twitter said, I feel the Scottish Open suffers from its timing just after the UK Championship. Would a switch to September make sense? Well, again, it's one of those where I'm always a bit wary um, because I know that how much organisation goes into it. But I have, in saying that, been thinking for a while that the UK will be maybe best served by being the last event of the calendar year. So we really had that build up to Christmas. And that big finale would be on the BBC. With I mean, it's not just about the BBC. There are lots of other broadcasters, but the fact it is one of those really, really premier events, and it would be like Hazel Irvin at the end saying "Merry Christmas." We'll see you for the Masters in the New Year. That would kind of chime with me, I think. Um, but 
you know, the, the UK is obviously has its slot, and 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 again, it's a very difficult uh, thing to organise a snooker calendar. I do think I have to say, and I'm absolutely obsessed by snooker. But thinking about the last few years, that Monday and Tuesday in the Scottish Open, I must admit I'm a bit distant from it. It's a bit like, hmm, it, it's the ultimate after the Lord Mayor show, really. And that's no disrespect to, well, maybe I'm showing disrespect, but um, when you thought of think you've had the heights of the UK final, that recent one that Ronnie got to make that record, and he was in the crowd, you know, um, holding the trophy aloft, he was being fated as a hero. It was like, this is as good as snooker gets. And then the next day, you know, best of seven you know it's like yeah i'll give it a rest for a few days actually but then in saying that come the latter stage of the scottish i'm tuning in again and enjoying it so it's that thing again of you know you don't have to watch every ball of every event as long as you dip in and out i mean i've seen some people on going a bit off at a tangent saying i i agree on social media this business about the and this is kind of what neil and Judd were hinting at about people not being able to watch long matches well you'd argue that people don't watch everything that happens at every event. I'm sure at the recent European Championship that some people watched England matches, as we saw by the huge audiences, but not maybe the Spain match the day after, or maybe one in three will watch the Spain match. And same with the Olympic Games, you dip in and watch your favourite sports. Same with Wimbledon, you've got your favourite players. So that's okay as well. But yeah, I do think the Scottish the day after is a bit of a kind of a, after the Lord Mayor's show, is that harsh, Gary? Uh, potentially, but I guess from a player's perspective, if you've if you've lost in the last one two eight or the last sixty four of the UK, you're probably um, raring to get your queue out and um, and play another tournament. Um, yeah, but and also I think for some snooker fans, the UK is the you know with no disrespect to the Scottish Open, and I think they have some qualifiers just for Christmas at Barnsley some years. Um, you know, the UK final is the last event of the of, of the year, and they will come back in the new year. Um, and I guess as fans, we don't have to watch everything, but the, you know, for the players who have lost early at the UK, it's a chance to, you know, start playing again. And for and for fans of snooker that are in Scotland to go and actually watch some snooker after they've been watching it on the telly for two weeks, watching yeah. the UK. Um, so, yeah, two sides to the coin always, I guess. Yeah, again, like Nick was saying, I have no experience in organising a snooker calendar, so it's always easier said than done. But I, I quite like the idea of putting the four. Um, the Scottish, Northern Irish, English and Welsh, if they were all together over a month or six weeks or whatever, and then then went to the UK after that. I know the UK Championship isn't connected to those four, but that might that would seem like a nice sort of tie them all together in in that way. But um, but then that would that would mean like moving the Welsh forward, and that's always quite nice when it is in the second half of the year. So yeah, I don't know, uh, but yeah, I do I do feel like it's sort of certainly the early rounds, like you said, Nick. Um, it's very much a high down to sort of it takes takes a day or two to get back into it, I guess. Um, but yeah, uh, that's just the nature of it, isn't it? And unless you say you move the UK to the last last one of the year before the break, then a tournament is always going to suffer that, I suppose. Yeah, no wise words as ever. In fact, I think we've got the World Grand Prix as well, haven't we, this year? Which is to be fair, mm. is a smashing event, and ITV always do that so well. So. God, I mean, we, it, it's a bit um, famine to feast, isn't it, Snooker? We said that a few times, Phil. We've got pretty much nothing going on at the moment, a few qualifiers coming up. But then when we get towards Christmas, loads and loads of big events, and we'll preview and review them all, of course, here on Talking Snooker, which is uh, the podcast you're listening to right now. You're most welcome. And we're addressing your views. And it's John next on Twitter. Hi, guys. Love the podcast. Congratulations on an entertaining, never-improving production. 
We didn't pay John to say that, did we, Phil? No money changed hands. He just said it. Very kind. I've been a snooker junkie for over 30 years. Adore the game, its history, and the players. It's been a bucket list dream to attend the Crucible for as long as I can remember. And I'm finally realising next year, having purchased tickets for the morning session on table two of the first Sunday. I'm so pumped. I'll be there from the Friday to the Monday of the first weekend. So my questions are, what's to do in Sheffield on the opening weekend? What's the likelihood of getting two tickets for the Saturday via returns? How near are the Winter Gardens? As I'd love to see Hazel and the guys do their thing. How accessible are the players and pundits to say hi to? I've only previously done the Welsh and the Masters. And how much of a chance is there to buy Phil and Nick a pint to say thanks for the entertainment? Any advice you can give, like a cheap Judith Chalmers, would be much appreciated. Now, that's the kind of cultural reference I can appreciate there, Judith Chalmers. It reminds me of a friend at work a couple of years ago that said to me, you have more holidays than Alan Wicker. I said, Alan, Alan Wicker? I mean, the, some of the guys we work with, I'm not sure they even alive when Alan Wicker was last on television. But anyway, Judith Chalmers, someone I certainly grew up with, loving watching as she would uh, travel around the world. And, uh, well, we're only talking about Sheffield here, not necessarily... Uh, a far fun place, Phil, and I think you should start. You're the Sheffield man. It's it's polite to say. What what advice can you offer John on some of those points? Well, um, he was asking about the Winter Gardens. It's right by the Crucible. Yeah, that's sort of. Um, I'm sure they didn't build the Winter Gardens with the, with the snooker in mind, but it's sort of been adopted into the whole process a bit, hasn't it? Um, yeah, that that went up when I was at school, actually. I think. Um, but yeah, it's it's you know it's a few steps away from the Crucible, so you can definitely have a wander in there. It's very pleasant. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, talk about Duna and Sheffield, you're, right, you're bang in the middle of the town centre, so just have a wander around there. Lots of nice uh, food places, drink places, um, right by the Crucible and further out. Uh, go down to Kellam Island, that's quite nice around there. Um, museums and stuff. The Millennium Galleries are a nice art gallery near the, uh, near the Crucible. Um, then if you've got time, I mean... One of the best things about Sheffield, it's nothing to do with Sheffield really, but it's right by the Peak District. So you've got time to go out into the countryside and uh, I wander around there. That's very pleasant. Um, or wander up Ecclesaw Road, which is one of the biggest uh, outside of the town centre, sort of most happening roads that goes up to Botanical Gardens, which is very nice as well. So, yeah, plenty, plenty to do, especially when you've got a couple of days. You'd fill that quite easily. Um, in terms of returns on tickets, I'm not, I'm not sure I've never really done that, but I'd imagine you might struggle on the opening day. I don't know if you guys have ever gone down that route for getting tickets. In my life, I've, I've been as a punter. I'm a bit more optimistic than that. I think he. I think there could be a chance of getting those through returns, actually. I think that there's a chance that maybe not the first session, actually, but maybe the afternoon, the evening. I, I think that if you keep your eye, eye out for that, that there, there might well be a chance of that. I mean, COVID could still be, well, will still be, sadly, an issue in our lives, I think, even next spring. And I don't mean by that that the crucible won't be full, but I think... Some people might still be wary of going into indoor venues. There might not be quite the, um, the kind of um, the gold dust element to the tickets as normal. We'll, we'll wait and see. But I, I would think returns might be an option, John. And as for, you know, um, seeing Hazel and the guys do their thing, that's very easy. I've done that many times myself in recent years. Wander over and uh, you can't get that near, but you can certainly see them do that. And there's normally a snooker table there and people tend to be doing different games of their own, I think. And I see Martin Gould in there actually, uh, play, playing with punters and have a chance to play a few shots with Martin. I've seen that before. So you will see players around. And that's the thing about the, the snooker bubble, I think we've all talked about over the years, uh, Gary. You, you, you can see people. I've wandered down to 
couple of hotels over the years. And oh, there's, there's Cliff Thorburn having a coffee there. And I'll just walk past <laughs> the Taylor. And it sounds sort of barking mad, but that's a bit like it is, isn't it? It's so, oh, I've just seen John Parrott. Great to see you. Hello, John. You know, it, it, it's kind of mad like that, but lovely, isn't it? Yeah, they're all so warm and friendly. And I mean, compare it to going to the football, it's completely different. You are up close and personal with the players and the pundits. They'll stop and say hello, have a picture, whatever you might want to do. And I've, I think in terms of if you are visiting the Crucible for the first time, I think it, it is actually worth, if you're looking at accommodation, like actually trying to stay in one of the sort of two or three hotels that are within the snooker bubble. It's a, obviously a little little more per night, but it's like the Novotel, you've got the Jewelry's in, you've got the Mercure actually in the Winter Gardens. And if you really are there to sort of embrace that whole experience, it's it's probably worth it than being sort of in the city and and and, and paying a bit less. So um, yeah, it's um, that snooker bubble which people talk about. It maybe because we're such big snooker fans, but you can feel it, um, and it is it is really good. Yeah, I think that's really good advice, especially if you're just going for a couple of days. It's probably worth a, a few extra quid to be to be right amongst it there. Um, and the, there's a, there's a few great pubs right there. I, I like the Brown Bear because it used to be where I started drinking when I was uh, <laughs> probably a bit too young to start drinking. Yeah, but <laughs> they would they would allow it there. Um, but there's the Graduate, which is just just by the the Winter Gardens, which is sort of almost like a snookery pub. I know people sort of uh, gravitate there, gravitate to the Graduate. So uh, if you're about there, John, then maybe head there. And uh, in terms of buying me and Nick a pint, I would never say no. But I know Nick doesn't drink, so I'll have his as well. <laughs> an, an Americano in my case, but um, <laughs> I, I would just like to say, Phil Haig, that I am waiting for the day when someone recognises me. I, I am delighted. You haven't met any more in the last week, have you? No, no just no. just that one. <laughs> but on, on, something else has come to me while we've been talking. You know, when I first went to Sheffield in, in the nineties, in my York University days, that that first time I went for the Bond Hendry final, and then the, the, the years after that. I don't think Sheffield made as much of the snooker as it does now. I mean, it's a long time ago now, of course. And uh, there's elements when you got very close, you'd know. But now it's a total snooker city during that time. You see the signage, you see um, everything about the snooker as you're walking up. You know it really embraces it more and more. And that's, you know, going back to the first debate we had, that's something you can't buy either. I mean, for example, if the event was in London... Uh, the World Championship, say it moved to like the O2 Arena, which I think you mentioned to me on one of the messages during the week, Phil, um, it would be totally swallowed. There'd be no suggestion at all of it being a snooker city. I mean, mm. let's face it, any event in London almost gets swallowed. The exception was the recent Euros. It was like a throwback, actually. Some of those later England matches did take over London, but it needs something as big as that. But Sheffield, the, you know, the, being a, a fabulous city, the, a big city, but not too big that it, that you don't notice the snooker is the is the most important thing going on. And, you know, we'd be careful what you wish for in terms of moving to maybe a bigger city feel because snooker would soon get swallowed up, I think. Yeah, and it's part of what we were saying about the position of it as well because if you could come out the train station, they've also redone out the front a few years ago now, but I remember when it, when it didn't look like that. And it looks great. And then it's only a short walk to the Crucible. So it's sort of all around there is very much amassed by posters and you feel like you're there to watch the snooker so um yeah that's very true um i mean it's probably not the whole city but they managed to keep it everywhere you would go as a snooker fan um then it would just feel like it has taken over so yeah that's right and yeah i mean at best if it was if anything in london can only take over a very small part of london certainly not 
when you come down and get off the train at King's Cross, you wouldn't feel like you've emerged at the, the snooker capital of the world until you get up to walking through the doors at Ali Pali, really, for the Masters Day. But yeah, it's right. Um, uh, it's very, there's a huge fondness for it in Sheffield, and everyone, I mean, everyone who, even not sport fans or not snooker fans, you know, they know about snooker in Sheffield because it's such a big part of the city, really. It's a, yeah, it's a, it's, it's very well liked up there. It really is. And um, let's move on now. I think we're nearly going over the hour mark, Phil. We've done it again. <laughs> Standard. <laughs> Arms out from Gary. He's delighted as well. I'm sure the listeners are. Let's hope they are. It's Mike Smith on Twitter here. Just watching Sean Murphy beat Gerard Green. And the ref hasn't got a clue where to replace the balls after a miss. Why not give the referee a mobile phone and send him a photo of where the ball should be placed? Well, I don't know about a mobile, but... I know Neil Folds has been quite outspoken on this uh, over the years and very entertainingly so, saying there's got to be a better way of doing this. I mean, there is a bit of a chuckle brothers from me to you, isn't there? And sometimes, I mean, particularly when you are one of the, those big events like the World Championship, it's like a little bit to the left uh, there, Paul, a little bit to the right, Paul. It's like, oh, come on. I mean, I know they tried sort of more technological approach for events in China, but you feel that, there could be some kind of virtual table placed over it, perhaps. I mean, what what do you feel, Phil? It's um, it's a bit from me to you at times, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think it's one of my biggest sort of problems that they need sorting. Um, yeah, they had their thing in China where it was sort of was it lasers? I don't know, but it, it works. I think it just looks really like amateurish. Um, but of course, it, it'd probably be massive expense, and then. Once you've got it on one, you probably want to get it on all the tables and getting those when it's at one of those big tournaments and there's a load of tables knocking around. I'm sure installing that technology might be tricky or expensive or both. Um, so I'm sure there's reasons for it not being there. But yeah, uh, I think that's if I could sort one thing out in snooker straight away, I think it would be that um, because it it, it it just looks daft. And I know it's I know it's what's always happened, but um, yeah, it it looks. It looks archaic in the, the technical technological age we live in when you've got the, as you say, the sort of to me to you thing. Um, so yeah, if, if there was a, a an affordable way of fixing that, then that would be right at the top of my list, really. You've got to feel sorry for referees, Gary. I mean, Monica Solkowska was on here and very diplomatic. I was a bit naughty and said to her, Oh, when the balls go everywhere and the other player says put him back in, you must think, oh, my God, that's the last thing I want to see happening. But, you know, you, you do feel sorry for them, especially under the heat of battle of a really big match. But, I mean, do you find that a bit embarrassing with that scenario? Yeah, I guess so. I, mean, I did just scribble down a point to that note as, as Phil was speaking, actually. And, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of loathe to be too critical of the referees because, in general, we've got a really good crop of referees and they do Brilliant. a difficult job well. And it's, it, it, I think the time it takes is more that quest for absolute perfection mm. you know, making sure the balls are dare I say it, inch perfect where they were um, but just uh, yeah you feel there must be something they could do to improve it even if like sometimes I'm crying out for the referee to maybe walk to the screen before they try to replace it look at where it was then go back and then do the, the communication so that at least like yeah. they have seen it even if they can't see it right at the same at the same point but um yeah, uh, I think, yeah, maybe, maybe that minute or 30 seconds, whatever it takes, just feels a bit longer because we're all eyes to it and watching it. But, um, yeah, it would be nice to erase it from the game. But um, I'm not, yeah, the referees do a great job. I'm, I'm not sure what the answer is. Um, but hopefully hopefully there is one at some point. 
Yeah, I mean, I'd just like to say I wasn't certainly wasn't criticising any refs. They, they do the best with what they can at the minute. But uh, yeah, I'd just like to see him get get more help really for it because yeah, it's a. I mean, as I say, when it, usually it's not one of those situations where they go everywhere, but <laughs> that looks like a real nightmare. Yeah. No, I think Marcus said when he was on here made a point of saying that we have a great crop of referees, and so say all of us. We can't give them enough credit. We have a terrific bunch of referees. I mean, the amount of mistakes they make are so minuscule. It's extraordinary. I mean, that I can never say this enough. I cannot get over the concentration levels needed. I mean, I've been, I've having to concentrate on this podcast now, and even now, as it gets towards a certain stage, I'm thinking I've got to stay focused here. And I'm talking, <laughs> I'm talking on a podcast. I mean, Gary, the, the, we spoke about it when Monica was on here, and maybe other times too, but. How do those guys keep their concentration levels? I mean, the intensity and focus they need, it's um, its something to behold, isn't it? It is, because these, especially you're talking about the Crucible, has been a bit of a theme of the podcast. Like Some of them sessions and nights go go really, really late. And there's not only the, you know, the keeping the score, the respotting the balls, it's keeping out of the player's way, which is probably the most important part of it, to make the game flow. And the um, cameraman. And the cameraman. <laughs> at the um, so... Yeah, and we need good we need good referees coming through. So um, yeah, I, yeah, I, all admiration for them as well. And really, no, they're excellent. We have got a couple more here, folks. We are coming to, to, to near the end. TN One Q Sports on Twitter. Does Snooker not deserve a regular slot on BBC Radio Four to air interviews and retrospectives? You don't need to be a snooker nerd to appreciate the people and their stories. I think that came to us shortly after the Hector Nunn's appearance when we were talking about snooker's place in the media. Well, it's unrealistic for me that you'd get a uh, position for the sport on Sport on 4, uh, on Radio 4, sorry. Um, sport on 4 was a programme that I remember when I was growing up with the great Cliff Morgan on a Saturday morning, which is a, a lovely, lovely radio programme. But I don't think Radio 4 do any sport now unless it's a particular one-off series or show so that's not realistic but do you know what i don't see why there can't be a regular snooker slot on talk sport our national sports radio network or radio five live from the bbc which is a a news and sport network um because it's a it's a popular sport i mean some people you know in the wider world might think oh you know it's not quite big enough for that but we think it is don't we surely gary yeah, I think so. I've, I've, haven't you guys done a sort of a, a live sort of for a session or so of the snooker talking through it? I'm sure you did. Um, we did at the start of the crucible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've always thought it was a good place for it because often, you know, the games are on at um, you know, time of the day where you perhaps are working. You can't be watching it, but you can certainly be listening to it. And sometimes I'll have like a, you know, a BBC Sport or BBC Snooker match up. I'm just hearing the commentary come in the background, and it's still quite effective in terms of keeping. Um, yeah, keeping in touch with the game. But yeah, definitely, I, I think there should be. Um, I know on TalkSport in particular, they do give a little bit of um, coverage. I think Hawksby and Jacobs have had um, have had Hector on a few times, which sure. has been really good. Um, and then there's been a few in the, the, the breakfast show, they seem to go a little bit slapstick with it and Snooker Loopy comes on before the start of the piece and it's all that kind of throwaway yeah. Snook stuff and it's, you know, it was, I think it was the Mark and Rianne story that got coverage on there and it, sometimes you like to, you understand why that's a story but you'd like to see some more sort of serious or more competitive coverage of it um, and I think there's a place for it um, but I think you guys are the, uh, are the, are the men for the job. <laughs> That'd be lovely, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, obviously I'm all for more uh, snooker in any form of media so 
Uh, certainly. In terms of sort of, yeah, live commentary of it, um, I imagine that the BBC, they do the live blogs, which is obviously for people who aren't really watching the game, aren't able to watch the game. I'm sure they do huge figures. So um, a lot of the time they'll have those live blogs and and with a radio coverage on other sports. So uh, that would be interesting to see how well that did with snooker. I'm sure it would work. Um, and yeah, there's certainly, I know we're at quite a period in the calendar now, but um, most of the year there's, there's enough to fill a sort of hour or so on a weekly basis talking about snooker and um, what's been going on in on the table, off the table. So yeah, there's definitely room for it. Um, yeah, as you say, talk sport's the obvious place for it. So yeah, I, yeah, it'd be great. I really like the coverage that um, happens on Judgment Day for the, um, mm. uh, the sort of world snooker. And I think in some of them tournaments where you've got 128, you know, in the uh, one arena and you've got eight tables going off, that would actually lend to it really well. It'd be that sort of around the tables type coverage. That would be that'd be really good because there are so many, as is always a bugbear online as well, there's so many non-stream tables. So just to you know keep abreast of those scores, it's probably a little bit more interesting than you know, keep refreshing your, your live snooker scores on the World Snooker all day. Yeah, I think it would really lend itself nicely. Yeah, as you say, Judgment Day is a good for one for that. And they did try it on World Snooker. Was it just called Snooker Radio? Mm. I'm sure they tried it at Home Nations, which was that sort of situation. Um, and what I heard for it was good, but I don't, I don't know, it sort of went away as quickly as it came. But um, I don't know what, why that was or anything. I guess if it's a costing thing as well, I think there's probably aim more at those sort of hardcore snooker fans but i think people would be interested on it on a sort of subscription basis if if it needed some funding i guess yeah yes i think michael mcmullen was involved in the brief life of that um yes um i don't see why there can't be room for a regular snooker magazine program even if it's half an hour you know um i think the, the size of the sport and uh, the importance of the sport in terms of public view it would lend itself to that very well as, as for live commentary yeah nice reminder gary we haven't discussed ever doing that again phil have we um, probably should say this to you off air but we <laughs> don't always play by the rules but maybe we'll try it for the start of the masters shall we it's, a, it's an idea that that would tend to lend itself maybe a couple of frames we enjoyed doing it didn't we and i think you know anything can work i mean the kind of initial view might be oh snooker's too too visual but actually Something like tennis is a very visual game and they miss, I always think, you know, it's not the best radio sport because they they miss so much in tennis, you know, because no one can speak as quickly as the players are hitting it. So that, but that wouldn't be the case in snooker, would it? You get every shot. Now, I'm not saying there is a market for it out there necessarily, but it's something that could be tried. And uh, yeah, maybe, maybe we'll do it. Maybe we'll do it for Ali Pali, my friend. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As you say, I enjoyed it at the Crucible. Um, first time really had a go at that. So uh, yeah, be keen to do that again. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's not a situation where you have to describe every single shot. You know, if someone's making a comfortable break and then amongst the balls, you know, it's it's a sport you can talk around as we do all the time. So and we got plenty, plenty of. And a good example of it was during the pandemic. Didn't they do a few things where they had the Crucible Classic matches on and like Ronnie and Henry were discussing it. I think they were even watching mm. like Higgins and Judd Trump fight at one point and they, yeah, they weren't even describing the shot. They were just sort of talking candidly and that about those players and what it was like to play them and what why they're doing with certain shots. It was really, really insightful. So, um, yeah, um, this is an ideas generation podcast now at the moment. <laughs> yeah. It really is. And uh, now we've got our friend Graham Torrell here on email again. Now he says, hi chaps. I listened to the Stuart Bingham pod early this morning, which was superb by the way. 
and was very chuffed to hear the last couple of minutes spent discussing my email. This was the chat that met you in the Stone Roses bar, Phil, of course. A couple of points of order. I'm not sure how old the chap Andrew is that Phil bumped into at Reading Station, but at the risk of ruining your excitement around your listening demographic, I'm sad to say I'm no longer from the younger generation. Well into my 40s now, like you, Nick, so much more Metal Mickey than Love Island, I am afraid. Now, you asked me about Metal Mickey, didn't you? <laughs> and I should say, for those who don't remember, it was an old a comedy show on ITV. And I, listen, it's almost before my time, so there's a bit of comedy involved there. But when I was a young boy, I remember Metal Mickey being on a Saturday tea time. and always really enjoyed it, actually. So um, that's, that's, that's that. He says, Phil was so keen to get back to the goings on at the Oval when you were on. And look how that turned out. Oh, yeah. Not, not very well for England, very well for India. He never actually answered my question. Could you perhaps kindly add to the upcoming Your Views, please? Now, I think this was about players and their musical interests, Phil, and maybe delve a little bit into your music love as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not a great... My knowledge of the players' music taste isn't great. I think it was asking about indie music, wasn't it? Because, yeah, Graham saw me in the, in the Stone Roses bar. Um and yeah, I think he mentioned Mark Selby's up uh, Kasabian fan. I think he's a big Bon Jovi fan as well. So that's sort of around that. Um, in terms of the entrance music, there's not too much. So, uh, Martin Gould comes out to Motorhead, which certainly isn't indie, but it's sort of the metal side of rock. Uh, Anthony McGill comes out to the Smiths, doesn't he? That's quite a good one. Uh, I think Henry's a big Smiths fan as well, as far as I'm aware. I did have a look at back at this once because I. One time I interviewed Anthony Hamilton, someone asked me to ask him who his favourite band was. And I thought he had sort of an indie answer. So I found out I, f- I found out his quote, which was, at the moment, The National, who was sort of an indie band. But then he said, I haven't got a genre. I like everything except country and western. Uh, but his dream gig would have been a toss-up between Led Zeppelin and the Beastie Boys. Yeah. So there's the sheriff's answer for that. Um, in terms of other indie music, um, Sue players, I don't know, but hopefully... Hopefully someone, some might tweet in if they hear this. Uh, but, yeah, it's a lot of sort of... Uh, you don't get too many of it in walk-on songs nowadays, I don't think. Not that I've noticed, anyway. Well, I wonder what we should maybe think about the song that we come out to one day. The Smiths would be a good one. I, this charming man might suit you, I think, Gary. You're, <laughs> what do you think? I don't know about that. Yeah, you put me right on the spot with that. Um, <laughs> Sorry. I, 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 threw you a, I threw you another curveball, <laughs> didn't I? A googly right at the end. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> We'd have to think about that. But but it's been an addition to the game, hasn't it? On a sort of serious note, you know, the, the music. And I think that it's been a good one, hasn't it, really? It adds a bit of fun. And I think you need those big entrances, don't you, you Gary, frankly? You know, it, it, it's never going to be like dances sport. It's not going to be mad and noisy throughout the whole thing you need to be quiet and that's the essence of it but it gives it a real sense of occasion doesn't it especially at the masters when they that noise is yeah. i mean god we missed it the last year because of the covid but we can't wait to get back there because it's electric at the start isn't it yeah i mean dave gilbert's song obviously is the one that everyone remembers but that at the ali pali i think it was the semi-final i was at when he played stuart bingham the year that um, bingham beat ali carter was I've still got the video on my phone, like electric atmosphere. <laughs> and I always think maybe before the walk-ons, they just have some lights like on the table and a couple of like quite banging tunes going just to get the crowd like sort of going, um, maybe for that sort of walk-on. Because I think the players thrive on that when they walk into, you know, two and a half thousand at the Masters and it's their song and, you know, everyone's sort of doing a bit more than clapping, they're sort of cheering and that kind of thing. 
it just gets that anticipation but then you can't beat that reverse where it just goes to complete silence as you're about to play the first shot there's that there's that lovely sort of juxtaposition of atmospheres that I think makes it really special doesn't it yeah definitely and I, I can't remember who tweeted this but someone there was a video going around from the bowls world championship and they, they put on some sort of light shows and there was some sort of steam or dry ice or something and they, they had really gone big on the entrances and I can't remember which snooker player tweeted but it's like oh we're getting out done by the bowls now so <laughs> <laughs> I think there is room to sort of go a bit bigger on the entrances when if and when we can but yeah, like you say, it's great when the, it goes it goes from uh, sixty back down to naught, and it's just the intensity that really gives uh, that really gives it the kudos. The World Championship again is always the best example of everything, really. When Rob Walker gets everyone going so much, and then it's just like zoom back to sort of intense quiet. It's great. No, there's no snoop. There's no silence like a snooker silence. What came up in my head there, Phil? I know it's a cliche, but. Sean Williamson singing at the bowls <laughs> from East End. If there's a better clip of well anything, so anything in sport, I just I don't know those faces in that audience. It's <laughs> it, it's like the sort of something like the sort of Jonas leg over cricket clip. You cannot watch that Barry from East Enders Sean Williamson clip without laughing. It's impossible, isn't it? Yeah, it's superb. Yeah, I think he's sort of making a separate career of that. He turns up singing at all sorts of events now, and uh, it's not done him any harm. No, he's a, a bold account. He's a lovely chap, Sean Williamson. Well, one more from George Way, and a bit of praise for us, Phil. I think out of all the Talking Snooker podcasts, the one with Stuart Bingham was my favourite. What a brilliant, honest guest who's won nearly everything big in the game. Hashtag winner, winner. Of course, Stuart giving it the big winner, winner chicken dinner when he won the World Championship. Yes, yeah, Stuart was great, wasn't he, Phil? He really was illuminating. And I know the press have, uh, have gone quite big on a couple of stories out of that, which we're, which we're really grateful for. And uh, everyone loves the top five, of course. And, and Stuart was very good at naming that. I was a bit cheeky saying that he might be number five. And he said about number 15, which I thought was, as you said, not a bad place to be. It was just a really good performance. And George Wayne, of course, friend of the podcast who came on uh, and talked to uh, some predictions in the summer was very kind to say that but we got a great response and um maybe we'll have short on again someday he really was lovely to speak to and uh, from his snooker room which added a real atmosphere to it yeah it was great yeah um yeah we expect him to be good and he and he was yeah brilliant stuff um yeah i did i wrote up the stuff about he was talking about henry's comeback which was all very interesting um and that was doing very well for us actually so a lot of people read that so that was great um but yeah um I always find with these guests, even though we go on these quite long podcasts, I always think we could get them on for the same amount of time, really. There's plenty more we can always ask. So, yeah, that'd be great if we came on at the time. Yeah, he's a friend, really friendly chap, isn't he, uh, Stuart? I, ironically, actually, he was the first player that I interviewed on my blog when I launched it back in what must have been 2010-11 time. Um, and I went to see him at his, his club, I believe it's Basildon. Um, and ironically, it was, the, um, it was the day that Ronnie... Um, nearly refused to make the 147 against Mark King, traded right. by Jan Bahas to, um, to play the final black. And we had a really good chat, you know, a couple of drinks and a bite to eat and gave this really long, you know, interview with me for my blog. And, I, you know, I didn't know, didn't know me from Adam, but, you know, he just loves his snooker and anyone who's a big snooker fan. And he, he just gave me so much time. And ever since then, I've sort of seen him around at venues and there's always a hello. And he's just a really smashing guy, really, is to... He, to to, to, to talk to about snooker because he just loves it as much as the fans, I think. 
Yeah, smashing guys a great way of saying. Wait a sec, putting two and two together here. You interviewed Stuart in about 2010, 2011. Now, wait a sec, Stuart won his first ranking title in 11. He's gone on to be one of the top players in the game. If we inspired David Gilbert to his first ranking title, Bill Haig, it sounds like Gary inspires Stuart to everything. I think so. That sounds just like what's happened. (laughs) I think we're going to draw it to a close, chaps. It's been an absolutely fabulous episode, and uh, we certainly thoroughly enjoyed it. I hope you've enjoyed listening out there. Will you come back and see us again one day, Gary, even if you're rich and famous? I sure will. If I'm invited on again, I'll certainly come back, and thank you for having me. (laughs) Well, and I think we might do another Your Views next month, will will we, Phil? Actually... We would like to maybe encourage people to have their say on the crucible. Even if you think it should leave, this isn't a one-way street here. Even if you think there are good reasons for it to leave, do uh, email us, uh, talkingsnooker at twitter.com or tweet us at talkingsnooker. Email talkingsnooker at yahoo.com or tweet us at talkingsnooker. But we, we love our views, don't we, Phil? Because we, we get so many interesting ones in. Some quite sort of bizarre, mavericky ones, some googlies, as I think. That's a sticker there from Gary. But um, but they're always illuminating and, and uh, they're very important, aren't they? Because, you know, we really need that interaction. You know, let, let's be clear. You know, it, it, it's great to have that kind of extra input because we're not experts on everything, are we? I know I'm bloody not. So, you know, the public can, <laughs> can give us some some valuable insights and sometimes answer us some questions, can't they? Not just put, not just pose the questions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I mean, some of these questions I never would have dreamt up. And that's a good thing because I think we can all come up with sort of the obvious things to talk around the game. Um, and in a way, that sort of crucible issue is an is a obvious talking point to come up with. Um, but yeah, no, the more the more points of view that come in and the better, because uh, especially these t- quiet time on the calendar, it's a rare quiet time on the calendar. So it's a good time to discuss the things that uh, wouldn't normally crop up on the table. Indeed. Well, have a great week. See you next week, uh, uh, Phil. Uh, keep your thoughts coming to us. We've got some qualifiers coming up, English Open, but still a few weeks away until we get back to big tournament snooker. Uh, but si- sincere thanks uh, uh, from both of us to, to Gary A. Phil. What, what a smashing guest he's been. Yeah, absolute pleasure to have you on, Gary. Uh, do you know when you're next going to a tournament? Are you being able to get to any? I am at the... I think I'm next at the UK. I think it's the last 32 round when it when it goes into the main... It all goes into the main venue mm. for a couple of... I think that's my next... Although I think there might be some qualifiers at the Barnsley, uh, at Barnsley, which I might sneak in. That's only about twenty-five minutes from me, but that'll be more. That'll be more on the day ad hoc. But yeah, the UK, I'll be at the UK. So lovely, enjoy. Yeah, you're you're laughing there in Yorkshire, aren't you? You're close to everything. You're close to the qualifiers. You're close to the UK. You're close to Chef. No wonder you're smiling. <laughs> well, that's it. You, and no wonder when she, my wife to be when she thought it was such a you know a big ask to make me move from Hertfordshire to Yorkshire. I was uh, more willing um, than she thought I might have been. Did you do that comedy thing of, of pretending it was a sacrifice? Oh no! <laughs> yeah, and packs his crucible picture into his bag. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant, Gary. You've been lovely. Have a smashing evening and uh, and rest of the week, and and we will love to have you back one day. That's about it then, folks, for this latest episode. Uh, We'll see you again next week. Uh, Keep your views coming, talkingsnooker at yahoo.com or tweet us at talkingsnooker. But for now, from Gary, Phil and myself, cheerio. Sports Social Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.